and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran. I'm a senior agent at Andrea Brown Literary Agency. And today I'm super excited to talk to one of my favorite people, David Elliott. But before David joins us, I want to open a can of worms. I mean, this is probably going to piss some people off. I'm sorry in advance. Hashtag not sorry. But okay. Here's something I notice while going through the slush. People querying with the phrase, this is a boy book, or this is a girl book. And look, I get what you mean, but if you label yourself girl book or boy book, we're probably not an ideological fit. I know that this concept is very real in publishing. Like, you can see it everywhere. Books are called literally, like, the very adventuresome activity book for boys, or the totally cute and frilly unicorn activity book for girls. But this is the kind of label I'd personally like to steer away from and help publishing steer away from, too. When I was a little girl, I did love pink and purple, but I also loved rockets and I wanted to be an astronaut. I think most boys and girls can appreciate a totally cool dinosaur or hilarious fart joke or whatever, just as most girls and boys would benefit from reading about strong friendships and emotions. When we talk about our own books, let's not put them in a box. And if we are gatekeepers, whether we're librarians or booksellers or teachers or whatever, if we're in a position to recommend books to kids or to parents, let's be aware of our language. It is super easy to say, oh, you need a book recommendation for your kid. Is it for a boy or for a girl? I mean, listen, it's an obvious first question. I've been guilty of that too. You know, starting conversations in this way, like, a boy or girl, how old, and then you go directly to the ballerinas or pirates. And I get why people do it that way, but it's so limiting. Try, uh, oh, you need a book recommendation for your kid. What are their interests? Or what are some other books that they've read and loved? It just, you're going to get a lot closer to what they probably want to read that way. My client, Kate Messner, recently tweeted, Talking about books for boys and books for girls builds artificial walls around stories and limits readers' imaginations. Let's make it a goal for the new school year to stop talking about boy books and girl books and just talk about great books for kids. I think that that's something that most of us can get behind. And uh, speaking of great books for kids, my guest today is a New York Times bestselling author of Picture Books Through YA. His books are often hilarious and sometimes poignant and always clever as heck. And his latest novel is Bull, a reimagining of the myth of the Minotaur with a very modern voice. I'm so pleased to introduce David Elliott. Hi, David. Hey, Jennifer. How are you? I'm great. So, um, so I'm going to dive right in because I have so much to ask you. Okay. So what's your deal? Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I have asked that to my therapist many, many times, and he has asked it back to me, and so far there's no answer. Oh, okay, how about this? You're on a children's book writing podcast right now. Okay. So what led you here? I mean, besides my invitation, obviously. Yeah. Well, you know, okay. So in a way, uh, I, I'm kind of an accidental writer, or I found it accidentally. Um, I've, I've always loved language and, um, I was just thinking about this, uh, earlier this week. I, I'm from Ohio, uh, just at the part of Ohio where the foothills of the Appalachians start. And, 
um, my dad went to eighth grade. I, I don't, I never saw my dad with a book in his hand. He read the newspaper and he read fishing magazines. Uh, and my mother married my dad when she was 16. She was the valedictorian of her class, but never got to enjoy that honor because she quit in order to marry him. Uh, the biggest mistake of her life, by the way. But um, my point about all that is that though my parents, you would never say that I grew up in a, in a literary household. Linguistically, it was very rich. Uh, my dad had 13 brothers and sisters, well, 12 brothers and sisters. He was one of 13. And they were all storytellers. And they were all gigantic liars. And, um, you know, I never heard my dad, for example, say, thank you. He always said, much obliged. <laughs> and uh, uh, a cup of coffee. I don't know if I've ever heard, heard him even say coffee. It was always a cup of mud. And it was always like this. Hey, wifey, Jennifer's here. Get her a cup of mud. <laughs> so I grew up uh, listening to that language. And even my mother uh, had her own way of speaking. And my mom died a couple of years ago. She was 93 and until I worked like a dog her entire life. But even, <laughs> even in her 90s, she still had this language thing going. For example, I would call her up and say, hey, mom, what's going on? And she would say, oh, David, I am as slow as Job's turkey. <laughs> so, what is, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, that and plus I attended a Baptist church. I was forced to attend a Baptist church, I might say for the first younger years of my life. And I think the combination of listening to those sort of fire and brimstone service, uh, services, which were also very rich linguistically, and the hymn singing, I'm still a really good hymn singer, <laughs> and, that lang and, and the language I heard at home and from my family. I, I'm told that you had a lot of weird jobs. Oh, yes. I... Um, I, I may be the only person you know that uh, has both been a cucumber washer in Greece, which, by the way, is the most Freudian job. You, I never understood Freud <laughs> until I washed cucumbers for 10 hours a day. I've also been a popsicle stick maker in Israel. I did a, I traveled a lot in my younger years and often with no money. And so I found myself in those situations. So uh, then... When I was in my th early 30s and uh, I was studying classical voice at New England Conservatory, I wanted to be an opera singer, but I decided that the world did not need one more mediocre tenor, which is torture, if you've heard them. So I quit. And about that time, I met my wife. And thank God, as, as someone said to me on the day we got married, somebody whispered into my ear, that is the smartest thing you have ever done. <laughs> and that's right. She was, that person was completely right. Do you think that your background in music was helpful in terms of writing? Like, do you think that an ear for music is akin to an ear for comedy beats or poetic rhythm? You know, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I think it is. 
I am really interested in the way language sounds. And so, uh, you know, I read everything I write aloud because I want to hear the rhythm of it. I want to hear the way the consonants and vowels come up against each other. And, um, you know, I really hope, for example, that people read read my books, both the picture books and Bull, and, and the novels aloud. They're really meant, as far as I'm concerned, they're really meant to be read aloud. Uh, so, yes. I'm, I'm, my ear, uh, you know, there are a lot of things about me that are, are not great, but my ear <laughs> is pretty good, I think. Uh, I mean, I, th- I have to say, I think that the, um, the reading aloud thing is so important. I mean, I often recommend to my authors that they either read it aloud or cause somebody to read it to them aloud. And then when I'm really excited about a book, I know because I want to read it aloud. So when I read Bull, I read it aloud to myself, to my dog. Oh, that makes me so happy, but <laughs> both it's, for you and your dog, I guess. It's true. I mean, I it's some things like demand to be read aloud. And I feel like that's when I know that something's really special is when I want uh, when I want to read it aloud and Well, thanks for saying that. Thank you. I'm I'm glad at least that that part of the book came through because I uh you know, originally those that myth, for example, bull was told and not written. And so it had its birth in in the ear and in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And so part of the fun for me in, in writing the book was to kind of have that in mind when I was working on it. Well, okay. I'll make a confession, yeah, which yeah. is... Oh, good. <laughs> I hope it's a well, juicy one. It, while I did love Bull, I don't always get novels in verse. Like, sometimes I feel like they're cheating or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to me about novels and verse? Like, what made you choose this form? And oh, you're going to make me say something I don't want to say, but Ooh. that's the story of my life. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what's gotten me where I am today, or where I am not today. <laughs> um, first of all, if I'm really honest, I I share that feeling about many novels in verse. There are many, many wonderful ones. Don't get me wrong. When, when they are good, um, what they do is help us understand the possibilities of our language mm-hmm. because they allow, uh, I guess all writing does this, but I think verse especially does it. They, first of all, bring forward its rhythms uh, and the possibility of its rhythms and how rhythm can carry meaning. Mm-hmm. They, um, you know, maybe have a little bit more license in terms of uh, not um, always denotative meanings, but connotative meanings as well. And I know, that, again, I know this is true for all writing, mm-hmm. but I think poetry really um, uh, essentializes what our language is, and by our language, in this case, I mean English, what the language we speak is, our birthright and the wonderful gift we have of that language. So, um, and, and in fact, the Wall Street Journal, I think it was the Wall Street Journal just this week, has an article on why reading poetry is good for kids. So, in um, and, and it mentioned some of those things. In terms of Bull, you know, I, I don't know if it's a novel, but I know it's in verse. 
So it may not be the best verse, but I know that that it can come under that category. Because it actually I, reminds me. I mean, you know, I studied theater uh, in high school and college. That's my background, and it reminds me of a play, really, or something. Like it reminds me of monologues. You know. Um, yeah. Well, there's been. Uh, it's nice to hear you say that because you know a lot of the a lot of the reviews have mentioned that they would love to see it staged. And believe me, nobody would love to see it more staged than I would. But And there has been some interest uh, from outside the book world and from the theater world uh, in the book. So I, I would love to see that. Uh-huh. Uh, why, did, why Poseidon as narrator? Like, or as sort of, I guess there are multiple points of view, but. Yeah. Well, you know, Increasingly, in my writing life, uh, what I'm going to say might sound strange, but, you know, I'm trying to remove myself from the equation as much as possible. So the reason I answered your question in that way is because I didn't really decide, oh, I hate this kind of talk, too, but forgive me. <laughs> I I didn't really I didn't really decide that Poseidon was going to be the narrator. It seems it feels to me as if Poseidon decided. Oh. And I really I, David <laughs> Again, I kind of hate that kind of oh brother. If I were listening to this, I would either be turning it off or saying, "Okay, I'm never going to read a David Elliott book again." <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, but that's really sort of how I'm feeling about it. So, you know, I had that, there's a little prologue um, that begins this way. The prologue is just 11 lines, and it's this. There beneath the palace walls, the monster rages, foams, balls, calling out again and again, mother, mother. No other sound but the scrape of horn on stone the grinding crunch of human bone under calloused human foot. So I had that in my head for probably five years or so. And I knew it was about that myth. I've always loved that myth. But I, and I knew I wanted to write about that story, but I, I could not get any, I had no entrance in, into the rest of the story. I just had that. And every time I tried to do it, I just, I sat there looking like, you know, an orangutan at the typewriter. No offense <laughs> to orangutans. So, but then one day, I I don't know how else to explain it. Just I heard, I, I don't even remember what I was doing. I might have been walking the dog or uh, doing the dishes, rarely, or just in, my, in a normal day-to-day life. And I heard those first two words that Poseidon says, what up, bitches? (laughs) And I knew then that I had a way into the book, and I knew that Poseidon was going to be the one who was in control of the story. Have you heard from teen readers? Like, I can imagine this being done in classrooms and stuff like that, like kids being really excited to read these poems aloud because of the cursing and the crazy descriptions of things. You know, I haven't really heard from teens. Nobody's identified herself or himself as a teen. But I will say about the cursing, 
you know, I that's what Poseidon said. I I didn't say it. I, again, it sounds so like oh, <laughs> get over yourself. <laughs> but as I worked on the book and I realized that Poseidon was going to be profane. First of all, as I was reading, it occurred to me that the book is really Greek, by which I mean it's not Christian. And so the idea of, you know, that's probably going to like kill the sales of the book <laughs> right there. But what I mean by that is the values in the book are not necessarily turn the other cheek, for example. Uh -huh. There are much more values that will come out of the myths. And so, you know, those myths are harsh. The gods are harsh. And the humans living through those myths can be very harsh. And so I didn't, I wasn't really trying to attract teens or uh, I, I hope I never find myself in the position where I'm pandering mm. to, to teens. But well, I, I wouldn't think that. But I mean, I just think that the very nature of those stories is so dramatic. And um, I mean, there's so much <laughs> bloodthirstiness. It's not you. I'm. I'm not talking about the David Elliott book, I'm talking about Greek stories, tragedies in general are so rife with things that kids would love to read about, you know? Yeah, that's true. I did anyway. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and also, you know, like kids, even older kids, even though we teach them and they should learn to I understand that life is not black and white. I mean, that is the most immature kind of thinking, which is possibly what's gotten into our current political situation. <laughs> but uh, but we're born, I think, coming in, in initially, we have a very Roman sense of justice. And so I think part of the appeal of those myths is that if you cross the gods, you are going to get it. You can't get away with stuff. So I, you've heard me rhapsodize about your books enough in our relationship, so I'm not going to fluff you up too much here. But I will say you have so many different kinds of books. You're all over the place. Picture books. You've got funny picture books, poetic kind of picture books, middle grade, and now teen novels and verse. How do you decide what to work on? In other words, like, do you feel like you're on a trajectory of some kind? Do you plan or do you just kind of do what you're feeling in the moment? Well, I think both those things are true. It may often feels like this is what I'm doing in the moment, but I think as, well, this is more than you or your readers want to know. But, you know, I did many years ago a five-year Jungian analysis, which completely changed my life. And I know from that analysis that there is so much of ourselves that we that is operating and living and alive that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I think the traject the trajectory is something that may not be conscious. And it may feel like, oh, this is what I feel like doing right now. But of course there are reasons for that. As I move on into my life and get older. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about different things, for one thing. Fair enough. I promised a listener that I would ask you about the Orc series. Could you talk about how that came about? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I have a writer friend who is a teacher, and he told me that one of his students was writing, uh, uh, was trying to write like, you know, a, a clan of the cave bear kind of novel. And it started this way. Ugh, said Throg, how search for wife going? (laughs) It still makes, it still makes me laugh. And so then I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take that crazy talk and try to write a kid's book about it. So that's really, uh, that's really how it got started. Uh, What are you working on now? Well, you know, this kind of goes back, Jennifer, to your question about do I decide to work on things or is that on a trajectory? So once I finished Bull, uh, my wonderful editor, Kate O'Sullivan, said, what are you going to do next? And, uh, you know, I was still not over the writing in verse part. So I said, okay, I'm going to take one of my favorite fairy tales, uh, which is The Seventh Raven, and do that. And I started that, and uh, I was about 40 pages into it. And one night I woke up, and my memory is that I sat up in bed, like one of those dramatic epiphanal moments in the middle of the night. That is not what happened, but... That's sort of what it felt like. And I was thinking Joan of Arc. That's all I was thinking, just Joan of Arc. And I can't even say it was thinking. It was just in my head. So right then I knew to set aside the fairy tale, even though I knew nothing about Joan of Arc beyond she was burned uh, at the stake. But I didn't know really why exactly. I mean, I knew people said she was a witch, but I didn't know. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't really know anything about her except that. Uh, so now, um, I am working on a, I don't think I I have to talk to Kate about this, but it's really feels more to me like a, a biography in verse. I'm trying to use again, because I think if you say something is in verse, it needs to be in verse. Uh And by that, I don't just mean formal verse, but I like formal verse. Um, so I'm trying to use all medieval forms in telling the story. So these are forms that Joan of Arc might have heard through songs uh, or you know, through the troubadours and that kind of thing. So I'm going to change topics. We're going to get off your books, although as much as I love them. Uh, we were on faculty together at the Cape Cod Workshop. Yeah. Last year, and we're doing it again this year. I know. Looking uh, forward. And for those who do not know, in this uh, workshop environment, writers are in small groups with a mentor, and their work gets critiqued, and then they have time to implement the feedback, and then they get to come back again and show their work again. And the writers in your group were obsessed with you as a mentor. So what are your top tips for giving useful feedback to a writer and also for getting useful feedback? Yeah. Well, let's start in the reverse. I'll talk about getting useful feedback. Um, You know, I mentioned my wife earlier. I'm still madly in love with her. She's not only really funny and kind, but also really, really smart. 
And the bad part of being smart is she's also really honest. <laughs> so she's one of my readers. And there are only two times when I want to strangle her. One is when I'm driving. And one, the other is when she's giving me feedback on my work. But I try to, partly because 99% of the time she is right. Um, but I try to follow advice that somebody gave me years and years ago, not long before I ever thought about being a writer, but about life in general. And this is, this is what it is. He said, whenever I receive feedback, I, whenever I receive criticism, I try to take it as completely 100% true for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very good advice, both for life and for writers, because, um, you know, it's, it's hard to get what you want is for people to say, oh, my God, you're the smartest thing ever. You're the best writer ever. We love you, um, but they don't always say that, <laughs> at least to me. So, and the defense is, you know, writing is an intimate thing, and giving feedback and getting feedback is an intimate thing, because if you've written honestly, which is hard to do, you are, your psyche is exposed, and you, you of course, feel very vulnerable. Um, because you're trying to get it right and you're trying to say something that's true and all of that. And so if somebody says, mm, maybe not, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it can, it can hurt. Mm -hmm. so, but it's so the, so the, you know, the first thing is to be defensive and to say, well, what I was trying to do is, oh no, you're dumb or, um, all those things. But I've really found it best not to say anything and just to take it all in. And if I let it sink in long enough, almost always, maybe the thing wasn't 100% accurate, what the person giving you feedback said is, or what your editor said is. But almost always, there's something in there that can make the work better and that can make you a better writer, which is what you want because... You know, you want to hear what a great writer you are. So that is that is my best advice about taking that feedback. Uh, and, and also I have kind of uh, harsher advice, more like Poseidon advice, which is, look, you want to hear the truth? Don't put it out there. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of teaching. I, I teach now in Leslie's MFA program. And I think... What I try to do, I try to do two things. One thing is, I always begin by saying, I don't have any answers for you. O only you, only the writer really knows the answers, and I think that's true. I guess what I try to do is, is understand, that is not my work. It is not coming from my psyche. It is not coming from my uh, unconscious. It is coming from the other person's place. They're trying to do something. They're trying to get a story out. And it's my job to respect that. And again, it's very intimate. And in a way, it's kind of sacred. Because 
the person is revealing, if they're honest, something very deep. And I should be responding from that same place and respecting that. Mm. So I, I try to get that across. And then the other thing I try to do is, you know, as writers, we love to take ourselves seriously. But, um, you know, I've lived a lot in third world countries, and my wife is the refugee coordinator for the state of New Hampshire. And through her, we've heard many, many harrowing tales of survival and resistance. And let's face it, even if somebody says to you, this is a piece of crap, you're not bleeding. <laughs> You know, nobody's going to die from that. Uh-huh. So I, I try to also infuse a sense of perspective about it. Yeah, I think that's super important. I mean, I, I love children's books, and I really think they can change lives and, and everything. But we're not curing cancer here. Yeah. That, that, okay to just relax a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And also to get out of the way and have a little faith in the story you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. The writer is not the important one. It's not the important part of the equation. The writer should be just the scribe, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And get out of the way so that the story that wants to tell itself to you can be heard. Okay. So what is a great book, not your own, that you'd like to recommend the people read? Here is a book and a, and a writer that I love that I think not many people know. Uh, the writer is David Malouf, M as in Mary, A-L-O-U-F. He's Australian. And um, the novel, one of his novels that I love is a novel called Ransom, without any R-A-N-S-O-M. And What he does is take that moment in the Iliad when uh, Priam comes out of Troy to get the body of his son Hector, whom uh, Achilles is basically mutilating because Hector has killed Achilles' best friend, Patroclus. I I love that book so much because uh, David Maloof's imagination is so rich and expansive and his sent- and he's able to to ar- articulate that imagination into the most lyrical wonderful language so uh, as highfalutin as that book sounds and you know what? I am lowfalutin of all the people I know. It's really true. It isn't highfalutin at all. It is, it is a beautiful book. And from a kid's book, I love all the Roald Dahl books because they're so subversive and they seem to care not at all about the adults who are reading the book, but really focus on the children. But I also love Tuck Everlasting, Natalie Babbitt's book. Uh, I love structurally, I think it's brilliant. 
you know, there's a symbol of the circle in that book, and the book is structured as a circle. You're on the road entering Tree Gap at the beginning. You're on the road out of Tree Gap at the end. But I also love it because um, I really think, you know, I, I read somewhere that I think it was Lewis Carroll who said, fairy tales are a love gift. And I never really understood that until I read uh, Tuck Everlasting. Because I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Winnie Foster, the protagonist, dies in the book. Uh, uh, dies as a happy adult, a, a, a well-long-lived adult, uh, although we know her as a child. Mm-hmm. And so the book is about what my friend, the writer Bill Lychett, calls the only topic, the the circle of life, I guess. That I really think the book is a masterpiece because it meets the reader and adult readers as well as children readers, wherever the reader is in her life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I could say much, much more about that, but I won't. But if you haven't read Tuck Everlasting to all you podcast listeners, you know. Do it. Do it. Do it now. Uh, so now uh, we've talked so long and I need to stop. But before I do, uh, every week I ask my guests about what they are obsessed with this week. It does not have to be bookish. And I will tell me you mine. Okay, which is absolutely, mine is absolutely not bookish. It is um, this series, TV series that I've been watching. It's on Hulu. But it actually first came from NBC, I guess. It came out last fall. I'm just behind the times. It's called The Good Place. And it's got Kristen Bell, who was also Veronica Mars. Some people will remember. She's a woman who has recently died. And Ted Danson is a sort of mentor when she gets to the afterlife. This show is so weird and crazy and funny and refreshing. It's like a sitcom fantasy mashup. I was hesitant to try it because I don't know why. I thought it would be like George Burns or something. I don't know. Uh But I find that it's so totally delightful and it's been renewed for season two and I'm into it. So it will almost certainly get canceled because it's too weird. It's too weird to be alive. Like It's too weird to be on TV. Uh I can't believe it's successful, but apparently it is. So yay. And we'll see. And, wh- and what's the um, what's the title again? It's called the Good Place. The Good because Place. She, yeah, it's like I'm gonna she's, check it out. She's, she's, she's not going to heaven. She, that's, they don't call it heaven. There's no God as we know him or them or her. Um, it's it's the you're, there's a good place and a bad place, and she's in the good place, or is she? Oh, yeah. Dee-dee-dee. I'm gonna check it out. It sounds great. <laughs> And also the episodes are short, which I appreciate. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so what are you obsessed with this week? Besides food, you mean? Mm, you could be food. Yeah. Well, this is kind of food. I am right now. <laughs> I'm obsessed with my tomatoes. Uh, I live in the country and I'm a very indolent gardener. Uh, but I try every year and every year my tomatoes get blight. And so for several years, I didn't, I haven't planted them, but this year (laughs) they did not get blight and they're loaded with big, beautiful heirloom tomatoes that won't, 
turn red. It's driving me insane. Okay, this literally is happening to me right now. So every year, my my tomatoes get blossom and rot or something terrible. This year, they're there. They exist. They are whole. They're beautiful seeming, except for they're still green. They won't. (laughs) Okay. We we have to keep in touch. What is going on? (laughs) I, I don't know. I blame Trump. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, on that note, it's been so lovely to chat with you. Thanks and, so uh, much, Jennifer, for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, to allow my narcissism its full, expansive <laughs> range. Uh, and I'll see you soon in Cape Cod. I am so looking forward to that. Thanks so much to David Elliott for joining me, and thanks to you lovely listeners. This podcast has a Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash literaticast. Throw in a buck, and you may win books, plus you'll get a sneak peek at upcoming guests and have the chance to ask questions. I'm putting links to the books we mentioned in the show notes on the website, and um, that's about it for this week. See you next time.